Hello, it's Elizabeth, and this is Theology on Tape, portable Catholic theology for catechists and Catholics who want to dig deeper. I'm here with Shane. Hello. We are here to talk about Moses. It's our Old Testament series, mm-hmm. and this is um, kind of part one of Moses, the life of Moses. Yeah, originally I thought maybe we could do Moses in one lesson, but there's just too much. So today we're going to go as far as the Passover. And then next time we'll do from the Red Sea to the Promised Land. So like the actual Exodus story. Um, But this is just going to be the life of Moses, everything leading up to the Passover. So because Christ is our Passover lamb, and that's going to be kind of the thrust of this episode, is Christ is the sacrifice that liberates and redeems us. uh, I thought we could have an opening prayer that connected to the atonement and the sacrifice of Christ. So what we're going to have today is what's called the three o'clock prayer. So it's connected with the chaplet of divine mercy. Uh, Three o'clock, of course, is the hour in which Christ dies uh, on Good Friday. And so it's been a custom in the church to even every day at 3 p.m. to sort of pause and acknowledge the hour of Christ's death and the sacrifice that he makes. So that's that's the prayer that we have for today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Lord, remembering the hour when you experience death, so that may, we may have eternal life, may we appreciate in our hearts the necessity of your sacrifice for us, and with your help, your guidance, and your grace, may be made worthy of it. Eternal Father, I offer you the body and blood, soul and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in atonement for our sins and those of the whole world. For the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy on us and on the whole world. Amen. Amen. So previously on our Old Testament series, we've covered the stories from Genesis, mm-hmm. Adam and Eve, Isaac, Abraham, Abraham and Isaac, Isaac, yeah, and Joseph and his brothers. So we're continuing. Those are those are I think the high points, the most important stories from Genesis. And now we've made it out of Genesis into the book of Exodus, which really picks up right after um, the story of Joseph. But remember where we had last left, the story was that Joseph had gone to Egypt and had sort of saved Egypt from the famine through his interpretation of dreams. And right at the end of the story, his father, Jacob, and his, the rest of his brothers, they all moved to Egypt in order to avoid the famine and and to be kept safe during that time. Well, several generations pass, and these 12 men, uh, these 12 sons of Israel, sort of develop into 12 tribes, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's kind of where the story picks up. So now we don't just have like a small family, but really what's becoming a a small nation uh, living in Egypt alongside the Egyptians. And that's where our story picks up here in Exodus chapter 1. Okay, I'll read a bit from that. Verses 8 through 11. Then a new king, who knew nothing of Joseph, rose to power in Egypt. He said to his people, See, the Israelite people have multiplied and become more numerous than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them to stop their increase. Otherwise, in time of war, they too may join our enemies to fight against us, and so leave the land. Accordingly, they set supervisors over the Israelites to oppress them with their forced labor. All right, so uh, Jacob and his family are in Egypt. 
Um, but as it says, there comes eventually a pharaoh that doesn't know Joseph. And so the Egyptians become, they, they grow increasingly suspicious of these foreigners that are living in their land. And as they grow in number and grow in influence, they become wary of what's going to happen in the future. So they decide to impose slavery or forced labor on these Israelites. And I think this is an interesting lesson, right? Because Egypt was never where they were supposed to be. Canaan was the promised land. Mm -hmm. They only came to Egypt for a time to be safe from the famine. Uh, but this is not their home. It's not where they're supposed to be. And I think this is an interesting kind of lesson for us in terms of thinking about the world and not being attached to the things of the world mm -hmm. and recognizing that we're here for a time, but not to put our roots down deeply in this world. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of spiritual analogy, but I think it holds up. And we see a passage like this in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is talking about kind of the great saints of the Old Testament. And one of the things it says is, they acknowledge themselves to be strangers and aliens on earth. They desire a better homeland, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So that's kind of a description of like who the saints are. The saints are those people who recognize that this is not their home, mm -hmm. uh, but they have this hope, this expectation for a heavenly home. And so God rewards them. So there's a kind of parallel with that here, I think, with the Israelites that, yeah, you know, you shouldn't get too comfortable in Egypt because Egypt is not your home. And as they do, then what does that result in but in slavery, right? Where now they can't escape because they have, they've become attached, something like that. Okay. Well, they, they're aware that, they, that Canaan was their promised land? Yeah, I mean, that's the, well, and maybe as time goes on, maybe they're kind of forgetting that. And that's part of what God needs to remind them of through Moses. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of what's going on here. Okay. So the Israelites are now enslaved? Yeah. And one other policy that we will have to explain as we get into the second reading is that in order to curb their population and to keep control of the strength of the Israelites, uh, they institute a policy where all the newborn male children are to be thrown into the Nile River. Okay, so girls are fine. Girls are allowed to live. Um, but these baby boys uh, are to be killed. And so that's where the story picks up next. We have a Levite uh, man and woman who uh, have a male son. We'll see what they do. Okay. Exodus chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. Seeing what a fine child he was, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took a papyrus basket, daubed it in bitumen and pitch, and, putting the child in it, placed it among the reeds on the bank of the Nile. His sister stationed herself at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe at the Nile, while her attendants walked along the bank of the Nile. Noticing the basket among the reeds, she sent her handmaid to fetch it. On opening it, she looked, and there was a baby boy crying. She was moved with pity for him and said, It is one of the Hebrews' children. Then her sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and summon a Hebrew woman to nurse a child for you? Pharaoh's daughter answered her, Go. 
So the young woman went and called the child's own mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, for she said, I drew him out of the water. So this is interesting. I think we see another example of a theme that we have seen throughout Genesis and now continues in this story, which is this theme of the loss and the return of a child. Mm -hmm. So Abraham has to sacrifice Isaac, but Isaac is returned to him. Uh, Similarly, Jacob loses Joseph. Joseph is, is dead as far as he's concerned. But Joseph is returned to him alive. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of like death and resurrection motif in a sense. Uh, this sacrifice and return. And now Moses' mother has to let him go. And sort of offers him up in a similar way that these other uh, parents had lost their children. And of course there's a, a clear parallel here with uh, the sacrifice of Christ and the way that he is the way that he's offered and returned. So he he dies a sacrificial death. He is sacrificed, but he returns. And of course, then there's the 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 um, the parental figure in the story of Christ would be uh, not only God the Father, but but Mary, mm-hmm. who offers her son in a way. Right? She participates in his sufferings. And it's interesting here that who is it that travels alongside Moses, but Miriam? Miriam, of course, you know, in in Mary's own native language of Aramaic uh, or Hebrew, that's what she would have been called uh, was Miriam. So Mary is kind of named after this um, matriarch of, mm. of the Israelite nation. And so it's Miriam who travels with Moses and sort of goes alongside him uh, in a way that Mary goes alongside Christ in his suffering. And so then it's actually Mary who's the one who's able to intercede uh, with Pharaoh's daughter and say, hey, do do you want a Hebrew woman who can nurse this child and and take care of him for you? And she does. And so then Moses is returned to his mother. So even though she has to let go of him, he does, in fact, come back. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a great, again, a, a kind of interesting spiritual parallel with this call that Scripture makes for us to let go to not be attached and that we will find our reward in life precisely when we are able and willing to let go of the things that we're holding on to. So again, I think especially of Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, where Christ says, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's exactly what we're saying, right? Is that if you, if you want your life to be returned to you, you can't hang on to it because that's how you would lose it. And it's a perfect example here with Moses and his mother. If she had tried to keep him safe, he would have been killed. Mm-hmm. But precisely because she's willing to let him go, then he's returned to her alive. There's a good kind of spiritual lesson there. Yeah to let go that would be virtue of faith yeah faith hope 
I think hope especially, right? Because hope is what we're talking about before Hebrews 11 of like having your eyes set on something beyond. Uh You're not just living for this world, but you're living for the world to come. That's the virtue of hope. Your eyes are sort of set on a horizon. Now, Moses, as we think about this story, he is now occupying an interesting space, right? Because he is a Hebrew by ethnicity. He's raised as a very young boy by his Hebrew mother, his sister Miriam and his older brother Aaron. But by the time he's weaned, he's then given back to Pharaoh's daughter and now raised as an Egyptian. So you can imagine that that would create for him a kind of complex identity, right? Who Who is he really? He is it's kind of one of those places where he will never really belong among the Israelites because he had such a different upbringing, but he'll also never really belong among the Egyptians because of his different ethnicity. So uh, yeah, there's something something complex about his kind of dual identity, and it will come into play in, in what happens next for sure. Yeah, like there's a, is it called displacement? Um, but that just speaks generally to... Um, us all being displaced here, right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's a parallel with what we all have to wrestle with of we should we should not strive to be at home here, as we were saying. And so there should always be something about a Christian that is not 100% in the culture, right? Just like Moses as an Egyptian, like, yeah, but there's always a little kind of reservation. And so there's, I think there's a kind of a parallel there for us of, of we will never be simply part of the world. That there's always something, because we have our hope and our mindset on something more, that should exemplify itself in certain ways of, of the things that, we, things that we do and things that we don't do. Mm-hmm. Whenever I I've visited monasteries and it seems like the, the monks there are just not of this world and of this world at the same time. Yeah. It's a peaceful, um, almost eerie, eerie feeling, but, and then I, I want to be like that yeah. <laughs> sometimes. Well, and I, that is really the importance of prayer and contemplation and the mass and all of these things is that when we do those activities, we are in a sense entering into that other world right transcending yeah it's a transcendent experience and so i always i have that feeling when i go to to mass um particularly the the latin mass uh, because it's because it has this kind of heightened sense of transcendence that when i go to the latin mass i really feel like i'm somewhere else Mm. it like that language of transcendence really resonates with me because it's like a totally, it's something totally different. And so then when I leave, I feel like I'm coming back down yeah. into the real world again. But it's important. It's important for us to have those experiences. And even in prayer, you know, to spending time in quiet contemplation in prayer and letting your mind, I mean, this is an important thing about the rosary, right? Let your mind go somewhere else so that you can let go of the things that your mind is always fixated on and put your mind on, as we say, heavenly things. So that's an important part, you know, even as we just think about prayer in general. Our prayer life cannot be consumed with 
worrying about all the things that we need mm-hmm. and the things that we want. Or the problems of the world. Yeah. So the point of praying about those, about those things is precisely to let go of them. So we can't just spend all of our time in prayer fixating on our problems, but spend time in prayer thinking about Christ, thinking about his incarnation, thinking about his passion, his resurrection. And that's what the rosary helps us to do, right? Mm -hmm. So those kinds of things, those transcendent experiences, those are important for us to not uh, become too attached to the world. So going back to Moses, so he is a Hebrew but raised as an Egyptian. Yeah. You want me to keep on further in the story? Yep. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. On one occasion, after Moses had grown up, when he had gone out to his kinsmen and witnessed their forced labor, he saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his own kinsmen. Looking about and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out again, and now two Hebrews were fighting. So he asked the culprit, Why are you striking your companion? But he replied, Who has appointed you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, The affair must certainly be known. When Pharaoh heard of the affair, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to the land of Midian. So we see that kind of complex identity right here on display. It's so sad because he he kills this Egyptian in, in hopes. He's thinking that he's doing something for his people. He's standing up for the Hebrews. But then the very next day, this word has sort of gotten around. And the Hebrews don't take it as, uh, you know, something good that he did for them. But they say, oh, you're going to kill us too? Like, who, who are you? So, again, he's, he's in this middle place where he, doesn't, he feels like he doesn't belong in either um, company. So, having been found out, he flees the country. He goes to Midian, which is um, quite far away. It's on the other side of the sea. Um, Saudi Arabia, basically, what would be today. Um, down there in the, uh, yeah, the Arabian Peninsula. And... There he meets uh, a man named Jethro and his daughter Zipporah. And he's, he marries Zipporah, has two sons. And so when he leaves Egypt, he's about 40 years old. And he lives out there in Midian for another 40 years. Mm. So similar to the story of Abraham, where it's kind of like, hey, he had this whole life uh, that's, I mean, yeah, he had an, in, you know, things are interesting in the beginning. Is this kind of complex identity raised by the Egyptians? But I'm sure for as long as he's out there in Midian, he's more or less forgotten about that life that he was living before. He's made a, a family out here and a life. He's working as a shepherd uh, for his father-in-law, Jethro. Um, so things are kind of going on as, as normal until God calls him in Midian. Okay, in chapter 3. Meanwhile, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Leading the flock beyond the wilderness, he came to the mountain of God, Horeb. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him as fire flaming out of a bush. When he looked, although the bush was on fire, it was not being consumed. So Moses decided, I must turn aside to look at this remarkable sight. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. 
He answered, Here I am. God said, Do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I am the God of your father, he continued, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This image of the burning bush, and we were all, you know, somewhat familiar with this story, God calling to Moses from the burning bush, but it's such a powerful and interesting image, right? The the fire that doesn't consume. And what does that what does that mean? What what's the significance of an image like that? And I think there's a clue to it in what happens next. Um, So let's go ahead and keep reading verses uh, 9 and onwards. Okay. Now indeed the outcry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen how the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you, and this will be your sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God at this mountain. But, said Moses to God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What do I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Then he added, this is what you will tell the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Uh, Okay, so we'll get back to the burning bush symbol in a second. But the first thing I want to note is the fact that God identifies himself in these two different ways. Remember in the first section, when God first speaks to him, he says, I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But now in this later section, after he gives him the commissioning, he says simply, I am. And these two identities are very important for us because they represent the kind of two wings of how we think about God, the two modes of talking about God. On the one hand, we have the God of philosophy, the God of metaphysics and and complex thinking and and our more kind of high theological ways of, of talking about God, philosophical, I should say, where, as we said before, in one of our first talks, we said that God is not a being, but God is being itself. Mm -hmm. God does not have existence. God is existence. And all of the things that that means, uh, if you're interested, you can go back to episode one where we talked Mm -hmm. about that. And I think we may have even quoted from Exodus 3 in that uh, lesson because this is so important that when God says, I am, he's not, I am, like, Like, I am a human being. This is a book. This is a computer. I am a person. Yeah, I am a person. Right. But he is beyond all of that. God simply is the one who is. We are particular things, but God is, full stop. Because he doesn't have existence. He is existence. Okay. Um, His essence is to exist. My essence is to be a human being. Okay, a lot. We'll, we will we'll not get too deep into that. So that's one way of talking about God. That's what we can call reason. The other way of talking about God is through the history 
of revelation through not just these kind of broad philosophical categories, which, by the way, are open to anyone, right? Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, they know nothing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they can know something about the God who is I am. Because reason is something that is universally accessible to everyone. Mm -hmm. So the Greeks have reason, but the Hebrews have something that not everyone has. The Hebrews have a particular relationship, a history, a covenant that God makes with them, that God makes with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God discloses himself in a particular way that he doesn't to just every person. And it's a familiar way. Yeah, and it's it's particular. It's specific. And so we are always in a position theologically as as Catholics we kind of hold together in tension these two traditions the Hebrew tradition the history of Israel and our you know the history of a nation the history of a particular people and this kind of more broad universal philosophical tradition because God is both and we really do injustice to ourselves when we fall too deeply on one side or the other where we take faith for instance and exclude reason mm -hmm. or if we try to take reason and exclude faith we're always tempted to do to do one of those two things but god is reminding us here that it's that it's both now as to the burning bush what does this mean that the fire uh the bush is on fire but it's not consumed I have to borrow from Bishop Barron when he talks about this, that I think there's an indication of the kind of being that God is in this image of the bush that is not consumed. It's not destructive. Yeah, it's a, it's a non-destructive and what Bishop Barron calls like a non-competitive way of being. Like two, two people can only be so close. And they can only cooperate so much because they're finite creatures, right? So if one person has their way completely, then the other person is not having their way mm -hmm. and vice versa, right? Yeah. So we, because we are finite creatures, we are in kind of in competition with each other. But God is not like that. God is not on our level. So he can fill our lives without destroying who we are. So that we can give ourselves completely over to him. But in doing that, we don't become less of what we are. We actually become exactly and even more fully what we are. Mm -hmm. So just like this bush, which is now kind of radiant with this light and this flame, but it's not destroyed by it. It's just, it's, it's enlightened by it. It's glorified by it. And that's how God is in our life. So that we don't have to make this distinction between like well is this what i want or is this what god wants like if it's really god working in you it will be what you want and and mm -hmm. you and your relationship with god will become so intertwined uh that you don't have to think of that relationship as as competitive does does that make some sense yeah it does and to think of um like surrendering to god's will that feels like a control thing like mm -hmm. oh i'll give it up to him but really like the actions that we do, like you said, should be enlightened mm -hmm. and our actions and our wants and all that, um, they will, they will go through our, 
love of God and a connection to God. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And, and that's what I'm always trying to emphasize when it comes to like the moral teachings of the church, that God's commandments are not arbitrary. And I'm going to continue to hammer that point because it's not as if God never just tells us what to do because he's God and he gets to decide. The instructions that were given, the life of faith, are things that are meant for our good. And again, I think that's part of what's going on here with this kind of non-competitive understanding of God is that everything that's good can be included within God mm-hmm. so that when we say yes to God, we are saying yes to everything that is good. Mm-hmm. I always liked that um, it took like a, he needed a, God needed to set a bush on fire to like, hey, <laughs> it's me. Um, and I think oftentimes sometimes I return to faith or who we're meant to be like, there is like a kind of proverbial, like bush on fire that you have to like, like God's showing you a sign that you need to come back to faith or you need to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And, and we have to be very um, attentive to those signs that when God is trying to get our attention to not ignore it, uh, but to like Moses sort of stop and listen and consider what it is that God is, is asking of us. Yeah, when it says something about him turning away, he turned aside to look. Oh. Is that just him getting a closer look? Yeah, he sort of notices it. And, and so okay. he's like, well, what is this? And, and so the something about the strangeness of it calls out to him for, for more investigation. Mm-hmm. And that's a good example of how God kind of operates, right? He gives us these little, these little mysteries, these, these little thoughts, ideas, or, or something mysterious to entice us to, to come uh, dig deeper. Mm-hmm. All right, so God now calls Moses, right? He calls Moses to go back to Egypt to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, as you know, we, we know the story. So he does go back and he does talk to Pharaoh. And of course, Pharaoh says no. Just as God had predicted that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. So one after another, God sends these plagues on Egypt, plagues of blood and frogs and locusts and hail so on yeah one after another egypt is faced with these plagues and pharaoh's heart remains hardened he's not going to let go of the israelites so finally it comes to the 10th plague the 10th and final plague uh, and that's where we pick up here in chapter 12 tell the whole community of israel On the tenth of this month, every family must procure for itself a lamb, one apiece for each household. You will keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, and then, with the whole community of Israel assembled, it will be slaughtered during the evening twilight. They will take some of its blood and apply it to the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They will consume its meat that same night, eating it roasted with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. For on this same night, I will go... Through Egypt, striking down every firstborn in the land, human being and beast alike, and executing judgment on all the gods of Egypt, I, the Lord. But for you, the blood will mark the houses where you are. Seeing the blood, I will pass over you. Thereby, when I strike the land of Egypt, no destructive blow will come upon you. Once again, we see this theme of sacrifice. Right? The sacrifice particularly of the firstborn son, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just So just like with Isaac, 
God demands uh, the life of the firstborn son. But as with Isaac, there is a sacrifice that can stand in the place of the son, right? Mm -hmm. So that lamb, this Passover lamb, is a kind of symbolic uh, representation of the firstborn son. So that when they slaughter the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts, this angel of death, when God passes over, and that's why we call this the Passover, Mm -hmm. God passes over the houses where the blood is, is that it's an indication that the sacrifice has already taken place, that what God has required has already been satisfied. So this lamb who kind of represents the firstborn son dies a death of sacrifice and in a way what we call a vicarious sacrifice, right? That he is then in a certain sense rescuing the family from death by intervening and dying in his place in the same way that the ram died for Isaac. Mm -hmm. So we have this kind of vicarious uh, atonement going on. And so, of course, this is a, a clear foreshadowing of, as we've been saying all along, all of these things point to Christ, but nothing more than the story of the Passover. The Passover is so central to the imagination of the early church. And that is in large part because of what Christ himself says about the Passover and how he celebrates it. So in the very last week of Christ's life, of course, all of the Jews are gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate what this Passover feast. This is now some 1500 years later. Mm-hmm. So this is a very long time afterwards. But every year after this, the Jews would continue to sacrifice a lamb. They wouldn't put the door, I mean, they wouldn't put the blood on the door and all that kind of stuff. But they would sacrifice this lamb. They would eat the roasted lamb with what? But with unleavened bread. Mm-hmm. And bitter herbs. The herbs are, again, a reminder of the kind of bitterness of of slavery. But they have this unleavened bread. And now in the last week of Christ's life, it is exactly the unleavened bread, which, and by the way, during the time of Passover for eight days, they are required to eat um, only unleavened bread, no yeast in the bread during during this time. Mm -hmm. So Christ takes that unleavened bread and the night before he dies, says, this is my body, which will be given up for you. And there he institutes, in essence, the new Passover meal, Mm -hmm. right? So God gives them this meal of eating the lamb and eating the bread. Now, notice that, that in the original Passover, they eat the sacrificial victim. Mm -hmm. So you don't, it's not what we call like a Holocaust offering or a burnt offering where the whole sacrifice is just burned up in fire, but that you're meant to kill it and eat it. And so Christ is connecting his sacrifice with this Passover sacrifice and instituting a new form of the celebration, not to memorialize this exodus from Egypt, but to memorialize his sacrifice, which is the fulfillment, the true sacrifice. And so once again, we eat we consume the body of the victim that's what's happening here it's not vicarious though right this circumstance it's not vicarious him saying that this is my body Mm -hmm. as we know the eucharist it's not vicarious well it's vicarious i don't know what you mean by not vicarious it's 
it really is the body of Christ. Is that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah. Yes. So what, whereas the lamb symbolized something else, this, like, Jesus says, this is my body, that really is his body. I see. Yes, yes. We can call the, yeah, so the sacrifice of the of the lamb was a kind of symbolic act of sacrifice where the where the lamb is standing for the firstborn son christ really is the son Mm -hmm. right he is the only begotten son of god but it's vicarious and vicarious means like sort of in the place of right Mm -hmm. it's vicarious in the sense of christ suffers for our sins he takes our suffering upon himself and in that sense it is vicarious Mm -hmm. so what we offer to god in the mass, the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ is, is this offering of satisfaction where this great act of love and obedience on the part of Christ, it outweighs and undoes all of the evil that we do. And so that's why this death of Christ, and we'll, trust me, in a few weeks we'll have a whole lesson on the atonement and, and how Christ's death is saving for us. Um, but in terms of the lamb, it's, it's an offering that is pleasing to God. And again, as it will say in the New Testament, God says, what need do I have of, of bulls and goats? You know, he says, do, do you think I eat the flesh of animals or, or drink the blood of goats? Like God has no need for these animal sacrifices. Mm-hmm. The animal sacrifices don't actually take away sin, but they're there to lead us to Christ who is himself God. So what we offer to God in the mass is not simply bread and wine or even an animal sacrifice or even our own selves. What we offer to God in the mass is his only son. And that is the only sacrifice that can be fully acceptable. To give God anything less than that is to not give God enough. And that's why the mass is so important as an act of worship is that anything else that we do is not enough. Because anything else we do, people say like, oh, well, you know, I don't go to Mass, but I pray at home, or, or I like to spend time with God here or there, whatever. Oh, okay, oh, that's fine. But the only thing that is adequate to offer to the Father is this, the sacrifice of the only Son. Mm-hmm. And that only happens at the Mass. Even just participating in that is like enough. to You've done your part, right? Where when we talk about like, oh, if you might be in mortal sin or you're unsure, like if you want to like take the um, Eucharist, mm-hmm. like that's not the point of the mass. The point is to offer up the gifts. Well, okay, but, but let's be clear. So it's not, the offering is not like, so we as a congregation, we offer the bread and wine. Like we, we take, again, this usually happens from like the back of the church people will process forward carrying the gifts of bread and wine. Mm -hmm. So we are offering to God bread and wine. But then the priest on the altar, the bread and wine are transformed, transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. And then that Christ is offered to the Father. Mm -hmm. And so when we are present at the Mass, yes, we have offered perhaps our money, uh, in the offering plate, we have offered these gifts of bread and wine. We have offered our prayers. We've offered many things. But the high point of the Mass is that elevation of the host, 
where the priest raises up and offers to God the body, blood, soul, and divinity of his son. Mm-hmm. So when I say the offering, that's the kind of offering that I'm talking about. It's, it's, that, it's that time of consecration where it's not just bread and wine that are being presented to God. Because we do that too. We, we give God bread and wine, but then the priest gives to God the body and blood of Christ. And so we, whether or not we receive communion, and this is an important point, is that that's why we should go to Mass even if we're not receiving communion. Because even if we don't receive communion, we are still there to spiritually participate with the priest in this offering of Christ to the Father. Mm-hmm. And so we have now, of course, to receive communion is to more deeply enter into that participation. But every time, every time we attend the mass, we are uh, participating in that offering. And as the priest, as our representative, the priest is our head mm-hmm. uh, and he offers Christ to the father on our behalf. Mm-hmm. So really, I mean, the mass really do- the sacrifice of the mass really does take away sins right? Because it really is the offering of Christ to the Father. And so, I mean, how would you not want to be there? But the, the point is, this is our Passover. So everything that this old Passover represented or foreshadowed, this liberation from slavery in Egypt, all of that comes to a radical fulfillment. So now the New Testament says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, right? So we don't keep the old Passover feast, but precisely this new Passover feast. Every Sunday is a new Passover where we remember that not that we were slaves in Egypt, but that we were slaves in sin. We were in death and Christ by his, by his death has liberated us. That's, that's the important takeaway. So that was the the life of Moses, um, and we will continue on in the series of the Old Testament with the Exodus. All right, so subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and people on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And if you have any questions about something we've covered or you want us to talk about in the future, email us at theologyontape at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.